Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Hamilton. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I am so happy to report that Patty is back from vacation. She is wearing a festive floral shirt, and she is here. She is here, which means the three musketeers, Patty, Benny, and myself, we are reunited, and it feels so good. (laughs) I am very happy to have Patty back with us. This is so exciting. We are not in the studio. We are very close to getting back into the studio. It has proven to be a tricky scheduling process. A lot of people, a lot of different shows fighting for that space, and there are a lot of rules in place to ensure that there is minimal contact. We need to be safe even now. Yes, even now. Continue to wear your masks. For God's sake, if you do not have your vaccination, What is going on? Please do so if you don't believe in them. What is going on? Don't listen to this show. Do not listen to this show if you are anti-vaccination in general. If you do not want to get a vaccination shot for COVID, shut the fuck up. I went on a rant that I did not expect to go on. I'm going to take a breath. I started a new day job a little over a week ago at this time, as of this recording. So if you are starting a new chapter, a new job, any sort of new era in your life, if that is beginning right about now and you find the transition to be supremely difficult, I am right there with you. If you're burping, if your body is trying to burp, while you are trying to record. Hey, I am also with you there. We have a lot of things in common. Okay, we have so much to go through today. We are talking about Hamilton. We have some show facts for you. Of course, let's serve those up to you now. Show me the show facts. Okay, all right, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. On May 12th, 2009, Lin-Manuel Miranda, alongside Alex Lacamoire, performed the Hamilton Mixtape at the White House Evening of Poetry, Music, and the Spirit. Spoken word. Patty, Benny, can we hear a little bit of that performance, if you please? Um, I'm, I'm thrilled uh, the White House called me uh, tonight uh, because uh, I'm actually working on a hip-hop album. Uh, it's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip-hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you laugh! 
but it's true. Um, he, was, uh, he was born a, a penniless orphan uh, in St. Croix of illegitimate birth, um, became George Washington's right-hand man, became Treasury Secretary, caught beef with every other founding father, and all on the strength of his writing. I think he embodies the word's ability to make a difference. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be doing the first song from that tonight. I'm accompanied by Tony and Grammy-winning music director Alex Lacamoire. Uh, anything you need to know, I'll be playing uh, Vice President Aaron Burr uh, and snap along if you like. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman drive? Thank you so much, Patty and Benny. What was once conceived as a hip-hop concert album would eventually transform into the blockbuster hip-hop musical Hello! We Know Today. Miranda's performance at the White House is a fascinating example of the process, the journey that takes place between an idea and its ultimate execution. What struck me as wild is how the show's title theme was essentially complete all the way back in 2009. True, the ending is a bit of a fumble, and the audience appears wary at first, but when all is said and done, Miranda has a meeting out of his hands. Ooh, chomp, 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 eating, I do say. Hamilton would go on to become the 2016 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on August 6th, 2015 at the Richard Rogers Theater and ran for 1,919 performances before closing on March 15th, 2020. But do not worry, sports fans. The show is scheduled to reopen on Broadway on September 14th, 2021. Hamilton is currently the 39th longest running show in Broadway history, sitting between The Magic Show at number 38, 1,920 performances and Aida at number 40, 1,852. Watch your back, the magic show. Hamilton is coming up behind you. South Pacific, Pippin, oh my God, your untimely hour draws nigh. Watch your backs. The book, music, and lyrics of Hamilton were written by, oh, who is that? Who is that over there? It's Lin-Manuel Miranda. The show was inspired by the 2004 biography, Alexander Hamilton. Wait a minute. Is it called Alexander Hamilton or just Hamilton? Alexander Hamilton, right? Oh no, oh gosh, let me double check. Oh, I should have trusted myself. Of course it's called Alexander Hamilton. That is the title of the book. I should learn to trust myself and my notes more. Okay, so as I said, it was inspired by this book. Inspired is a crucial term here as the show deviates from and obscures quite a bit of American history. We will get into all of that, believe you me, but meanwhile, while back, back to the show facts, the director of Hamilton was Thomas Kale. The musical director was Alex Lacamoire. Hello again, Alex. The choreographer was Andy Blankenbuehler. Scenic design, David Corrins. Lighting design, Howell Binkley. Sound design, Nevin Steinberg. Costume design, Paul Taswell. Hey, Paul, I, I recognize your name. I'm recognizing these names as we continue to explore this canon. The original Broadway cast of Hamilton included David Diggs, 
Broadway debut, hello, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Jonathan Groff, Christopher Jackson, Jasmine Cephas Jones, Broadway debut, Lin-Manuel Miranda, hello again, Javier Munez, Leslie Odom Jr., Oki Ariete, Ona Dowan, Anthony Ramos, Broadway debut, Philippa Sue, Broadway debut, and as always, I do apologize if I have mispronounced any first or last names. Everyone, everyone in this core cast is operating at the height of their powers, no exception. Well, I suppose Miranda is a bit of a ham during the number It's Quiet Uptown, but that's okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow it, okay? It's okay to be a ham sometimes. In terms of Tony Nods, we have a lot of awards to go through here. Hamilton won Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Best Original Score, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Best Leading Actor in a Musical, Leslie Odom Jr., Best Featured Actor in a Musical, David Diggs, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Best Choreography, Andy Blankenbuehler, Best Direction of a Musical, Thomas Kale, Best Orchestrations, Alex Lacamoire, Best Costume Design, Paul Taswell, and Best Lighting Design, Howell Binkley, but it was also additionally nominated for Best Leading Actor in a Musical, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Best Leading Actress in a Musical, Philippa Sue, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Christopher Jackson, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Jonathan Groff, and Best Scenic Design, David Corenz. So, 16 Tony nominations in total, 11 awards at the end of the evening. It also won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, which went to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Congratulations, Lin-Manuel. Hamilton holds the record for the total number of Tony nominations, while the producers holds the record for Tony wins. As a reminder, that production won 12 Tony Awards. Are you ready for the plot? Let's do it. New York, 1776. Alexander Hamilton, having left the island of Nevis to make a name for himself in the American colonies, finds kinship among romantics, philosophers, and agitators. Aaron Burr Jr., John Lawrence, Hercules Mulligan, and Marie-Joseph Paul-Yves Roche Gilbert de Mottier, Marquis de Lafayette, otherwise known as Lafayette. The American Revolution is well underway, and while most of Hamilton's friends are eager to be free from Great Britain, Burr remains skeptical as to their chances of winning the war. Burr is not alone. Samuel Seabury declares the American Congress will lead its colonies to ruin, ruin, a stance Hamilton swiftly undermines with his wit. General George Washington hires Hamilton as an aide-de-camp, and though our hero longs for the rush of battle, he accepts the position position with enthusiasm. Meanwhile, King George III of Great Britain watches America from afar, confident his forces will win the day. Hamilton attends a ball held by Philip Schuyler and his daughters, the lovely and loyal Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. Though Angelica and Hamilton forge an instant connection, she steps aside upon learning Eliza has feelings for the gentleman. Angelica will regret this decision for the rest of her life. Eliza and Hamilton are soon wed, leaving Aaron Burr to fear he will be left behind while others find success. Burr has fallen for a lady by the name of Theodosia, but there's only one problem. She is married to a British officer. Whoopsie-daisy! We learn about the fine art of dueling when John Lawrence asks Hamilton to assist him in confronting Charles Lee, who recently insulted Washington and, by extension, Mr. Lawrence. 
Lee is injured in the duel, and Washington, infuriated by the spectacle, benches Hamilton until further notice. Hamilton and Eliza prepare for the arrival of their first child, a son, who will take his grandfather's name, Philip. But what's this? Lafayette has convinced France to aid America in the war? Washington needs Hamilton's help in planning the 1781 Battle of Yorktown? Say no more, Hamilton is on the way. There is nothing our hero wants more than to die as a broken, bloody, and beautiful martyr. Washington is like, okay, yeah, please come home. Do not die. You have a wife and a son on the way, remember? And Hamilton is like, oh, right, them. During the Battle of Yorktown, it is revealed Hercules Mulligan has been acting as a spy on behalf of the Americans. He knows how to trap the British and win the war, which is exactly what happens. King George III admits defeat, though he wonders how America will manage in the coming years. Lafayette travels to France with the hope of fermenting another revolution. Philip is born, as is Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia, who is named after her mother. John Lawrence is killed in a late-stage skirmish with the British, very sad. The newly elected President Washington asks Hamilton to serve as America's first Secretary of the Treasury, and though Eliza begs her husband to stay home, our hero finds he cannot deny his mentor. Amidst all of this, Angelica moves to London with her new husband, John Barker Church. Act 2. Thomas Jefferson, having completed his tenure as the ambassador to France, returns to America and begins his term as Secretary of State. The year is 1789. Hamilton, Jefferson, and James Madison are constantly bickering over America's financial future, and though our hero is averse to compromise, Washington orders him to find common ground. That's an order from your president, Hamilton. Yes, sir. Angelica returns to America to be with her sisters for the summer. Hamilton spends the season in his office, desperate to work out a deal with Jefferson and Madison that will not betray his principles. Stress drives him into the arms of Mariah Reynolds. Mariah's husband, James, is not a fan of the affair, though he is not above blackmailing Hamilton as a way of turning a profit. Personally, our hero's life is a wreck, but politically everything's coming up roses. Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison hammer out the Compromise of 1790 behind closed doors, while Burr remains on the sidelines. Feeling alienated, Burr changes political parties, runs for New York senator against Philip Schuyler, and wins. Philip Schuyler is, as a reminder, Hamilton's father-in-law. Hamilton named his son after Philip. Hamilton is not happy about this. Americans soon face another challenge. Will we come to the aid of the French in their fight against the British. France did help America during its revolution, after all. Hamilton argues for neutrality in the matter. Washington agrees. You know who does not agree? Jefferson, Madison, and Burr. As Washington steps away from the presidency, these uneasy allies collude to bring Hamilton down once and for all. When King George III learns Washington will be replaced by John Adams, he is 
thoroughly gobsmacked by the news. John Adams, president, my God! This so-called country is going down the tubes! Note, John Adams is never seen on stage, which struck Chris and I as a thoroughly bizarre choice. I understand we have to crimp corners here and there, but come on, John Adams? You're cutting John Adams? President Adams takes office and immediately removes Hamilton from the Treasury. You fired! Hamilton responds by publishing an inflammatory takedown of Adams. Jefferson, Madison, and Burr privately accuse Hamilton of paying James Reynolds, husband of Mariah Reynolds, as another reminder, with government funds. It's your choice, Hamilton. Settle down. Keep quiet, or we will tell everyone about your affair. Hamilton publishes the Reynolds pamphlet, which reveals every detail of said affair and thereby robs his rivals of any power they had over him. Eliza proceeds to burn every letter her husband ever sent to her. She's upset. Philip Hamilton enters into a duel to defend his father's name, a face-off that ends with the young man's death. In their grief, Eliza and Hamilton reconcile. Hamilton told Philip that the only way to honorably handle a duel was to raise your gun into the air before firing. Only men of ill repute would actually take aim at their opponent. Murder is bad. Philip took his father's advice, and now he is dead, because guess what, Hamilton? Philip's opponent did not raise their gun into the air before firing. Thanks, Daddy, I'm dead. When Hamilton endorses Thomas Jefferson over Aaron Burr, in the lead-up to the 1800 presidential election, Aaron Burr snaps, he challenges our hero to, you guessed it, a duel. The moment arrives for Hamilton to turn and shoot, but he raises his gun into the air instead. Burr shoots Hamilton between the ribs, and our hero dies shortly thereafter. Burr is horrified. He knows none of his achievements will matter in the wake of this incident. Historians will only remember him as the man who killed Alexander Hamilton. Eliza informs the audience that she honored her husband's legacy by working with Angelica to fund the Washington Monument. She also spoke out against slavery and established America's first private orphanage. The musical ends as Eliza learns of Hamilton's death, which causes her to release a terrible sob. The end. A note regarding casting. David Diggs plays Lafayette, a French ally, and an advocate for the French, Thomas Jefferson. Parallels, parallels. Anthony Ramos plays John Lawrence, who dies in battle, and Philip Hamilton, who dies in a duel. Parallels. I wish parallels such as these could be drawn for every member of the cast, but alas, that is not the case. Peggy Schuyler and Mariah Reynolds do not, as far as I can tell, have anything in common. I assumed Hercules Mulligan and James Madison both fought in the Revolutionary War, but this is not true. They were both revolutionaries, to be sure, but Madison never saw battle. Look, Jasmine Cephas Jones, oh, Kieriete Onadoan, what can I say I'm at a loss. I think I messed up those names even more than I did the first time around. I do apologize. For the purposes of this week's episode, I read the 2004 biography Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. I enjoyed making my way through this impressively written tome, which contains countless parallels, ah, parallels, between American
America's early days and those of 2021. Early America dealt with all of the crap we deal with today. Accusations of fake news, capital insurrections, theories regarding foreign manipulation of elections. We had COVID-19. They had yellow fever. The South was already being characterized as a beatific land of real patriots, farmers, while the North was painted as a bubble for elites. Jefferson and Madison's Kentucky and Virginia resolutions poisoned the state's rights well, and we are still dealing with the aftermath. Above all else, white men viewed themselves as unimpeachably virtuous, and they were constantly contradicting themselves. What? I never said that. Shut up! Listen to what I am saying right now, stupid. I am a genius, and you are stupid, stupid! White men, what can you do? They don't change. Needless to say, I took a lot of notes while reading Chernow's book. Ten pages of notes. Ten pages of transcription, I should say. And we'll get to all of that, but for the moment, I'd like to point out Eliza and Hamilton had eight children, not one, as the musical would have us believe. Sure, there are passing references to Philip's sister and the children as a collective, but the show only cares about Philip. He's the only child we meet the other children are not even mentioned by name, so let's do that now. Let us properly honor the Hamilton children. Philip was indeed the firstborn, that cannot be denied. He was followed by Angelica, named after her aunt, Alexander Jr., James Alexander, who would go on to serve as the Secretary of State for just 23 days in 1829, John Church, named after his uncle, William Stephen, Eliza, named after her mother, of course, and and Philip, named after his brother and otherwise known as Little Phil. Hamilton and Eliza also raised an orphan named Frances Fanny Antill for 10 years between the ages of 2 and 12. They had a lot of kids, is what I mean to say. Be sure to remember their daughter, Angelica. Put a pin in Angelica. Her story is bleak. Okay, what else did I do? What else did I do? I listened to the 2015 original Broadway cast album of Hamilton, of course. I watched the 2016 Tony Awards performance of History Has Its Eyes on You and Yorktown, The World Turned Upside Down. Now, in regards to the 2016 release, The Hamilton Mixtape, the official hip-hop concept album. Okay, so I tried my best to settle in with this album, but as I said, I started a new day job and time was in short supply. You can only hear the phrase, the Hamilton mixtape, so many times before moving on with your life. I'm sure I'm missing out on some amazing tracks. If that is the case, please tell me. And finally, I rewatched Hamilton via Disney Plus. It was filmed in 2016 and released via Disney Plus in 2020. Now, I said this during our Patreon bonus episode on Hamilton, but there are a handful of staging choices that seem unnecessary. Call it a case of too much garnish. What is going on in the wake of You'll Be Back, for example? King George III has a woman uh, killed or some such thing? Uh, it never lands for me. In Act 2, there is a moment in which someone aims a gun at Hamilton, and the arc of the bullet is traced by a member of the ensemble. The bullet misses Hamilton, if only by an inch, but he is too busy writing to notice. 
<laughs> yes, uh, foreshadowing. I understand we have to find a way to cover scene transitions, but this stuff is clunky. To clarify, Thomas Kale and Andy Blankenbuehler are doing a stupendous job in the macro sense. This is a wonderful piece of stage work, but some of the smaller touches could be cut. Some, not all. We can deal with an empty stage for a few seconds, fellas. It can be done if you believe in us. I tried my best to engage with the 2016 off-Broadway cast album of Spamilton, an American parody, but the first track left me feeling sweaty, literally, and self-conscious. If anything else, Spamilton proves you can put a lot of work into crafting satire that is equal parts toothless and unfunny. Well, that's not entirely true. It is funny. The lyrics of the opening number claim Miranda hated Disney and fought to rid Broadway of its influence, which is very funny when you consider Moana was released four months after Spamilton premiered. Even better, the show asserts Miranda saw and despised The Little Mermaid on Broadway, yet one month after Spamilton opened, it was reported Miranda would write songs alongside Alan Menken for Disney's remake of the 1989 film. I realize no one could have known this in advance, but the insistence regarding Miranda's outsider status is Daffy Duck. Quote, he saw Little Mermaid. It made him think of suicide. Disney was nothing but goo inside. He felt blue inside. Quote, did he, Spamilton? Did he feel blue inside? Did he consider suicide? Also, nothing but goo inside? I mean... For all I know, this is deep state lampooning on their part, but I very much doubt it. And at the end of the day, what do I know? Miranda saw Spamilton and was quoted as saying, I laughed, my brain's out. So what do I know? I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. When's it gonna get me? In my sleep, seven feet ahead of me. If I see it coming, do I run or do I let it be? Is it like a beat without a melody? See, I never thought I'd live past 20. Where I come from, some get half as many. Ask anybody why we live it fast and we laugh, reach for a flask. We have to make this moment last. That's plenty. Scratch that. This is not a moment. It's the movement where all the hungriest brothers with something to prove went. Foes oppose us. We take an honest stand. We roll like Moses, claiming our promised land. And if we win our independence, is that a guarantee of freedom for our descendants? Or will the blood we shed begin an endless cycle of vengeance and death with no defendants? I know the action in the street is exciting, but Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action's an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow. For the first time, I'm thinking past tomorrow. And I have not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. Ayo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not thrown away
begin our deconstruction of the score with my shot. The line, I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory, reminded me of this, the first of many passages from Ron Chernow's Hamilton I will be reciting today. To be honest, this episode is less of a commentary than it is a book report, and I for one am proud of that fact. This is from chapter 2 of the biography, Hurricane, page 38. On October 17th, the Gazette ran an unsigned hymn that incontestably came from Hamilton's pen and was later cherished by his wife as proof of her husband's religious devotion. Entitled The Soul Ascending into Bliss, it is a lovely mystical meditation in which Hamilton envisions his soul soaring heavenward. Quote, Hark! Hark! A voice from yonder sky, methinks I hear my Savior cry. I come, O Lord, I mount, I fly, on rapid wings I cleave the sky. Quote, this is me talking now, Jonathan, hello, I'm back, this is me. Jonathan, hello, it's me, I'm back. Hamilton's relationship with John Lawrence is cited early and often throughout the musical, but Chernow implies their connection could have been romantic. Ooh la la, color me intrigued. The following are two examples of Hamilton's Mooney correspondence with Lawrence. Chapter 6, A Frenzy of Valor, pages 123 through 124. Quote, this is a letter, quote, Cold in my professions, warm in friendships. I wish, my dear Lawrence, it might be in my power by action rather than words to convince you that I love you. I shall only tell you that till you bade us adieu, I hardly knew the value you had taught my heart to set upon you. Indeed, my friend, it was not well done. You know the opinion I entertain of mankind, and how much it is my desire to preserve myself free from particular attachments, and to keep my happiness independent of the caprice of others. You should not have taken advantage of my sensibility to steal into my affections without my consent. Quote, Here's another letter from Alexander Hamilton to John Lawrence. Quote, I have written you five or six letters since you left Philadelphia, and I should have written you more had you made proper return. But, like a jealous lover, when I thought you slighted my caresses, my affection was alarmed and my vanity peaked. Quote, Oh my goodness, Mr. Hamilton. These do read as very gay. <laughs> Am I wrong? Very, very gay. Bisexual, gay, whatever you want to call it. I do agree with Chernow. There is some, there is a definite romantic undercurrent here. I'm just saying. Okay, can we hear a little bit of the Schuyler sisters next? Thank you in advance. I'm looking for a mind at work. I'm looking for a mind at work. I'm looking for a mind at work. 
The Schuyler sisters are, without a doubt, the best characters found within Hamilton. Renee Elise Goldsberry, Philippa Sue, and Jasmine Cephas Jones are champions who deserve nothing but fame and success for the rest of their days. Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy were only three of 15 children sired by Philip Schuyler and his wife, Catherine. Here's the full breakdown of that family tree. We begin with Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy, of course. They were followed by Cornelia and John Bradstreet Schuyler, twins who died at birth. The sixth child, whose name was also John Bradstreet, died within a year. You would think the parents would have abandoned the name John Bradstreet at this point, but no, no, no. Their seventh child was also named John Bradstreet, and he lived to the ripe age of 30. Third time's the charm, I suppose, until you turn 30. John was followed by Philip Jeremiah, who served in the House of Representatives, and a set of unnamed triplets, all of whom died at birth. But that only brings us to 11. We must also mention Rensselaer, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Rensselaer, Cornelia, Cortlant, who died at birth, and finally, Catherine Van Rensselaer Schuyler. Catherine's second husband was her first cousin. Fun! No, don't change the subject, cause you're my favorite subject. Submissive subject My loyal, royal subject Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever You'll be back like before I will fight the fight and win the war For your love, for your praise and I'll love you till my dying days When you're gone, I'll go mad So don't throw away this thing we had Cause when push comes to shove I will kill your friends and family To remind you of my love Da-da-da-da-da Da 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 George III, Jonathan Groff is at his best when remaining perfectly still on stage. The discipline on display throughout You'll Be Back is astonishing, and I'll say this, the man knows how to produce a loogie like no other. If you've seen the Disney Plus presentation, you know what I'm talking about. His performance goes a little off the rails in Act 2, but Act 2 has a goofiness problem Chris and I could not help but notice. It's a little too goofy. So it's not like Groff is blazing 
blazing a disruptive trail or some such. They let him off the leash. He's a wild dog. He ran wild. What can you do? Your Excellency, sir. Who are you? Aaron Burr, sir. Permission to state my case. As you were. Sir, I was a captain under General Montgomery until he caught a bullet in the neck in Quebec. And well, in summary, I think that I could be of some assistance. I admire how you keep firing on the British from a distance. I have some questions, a couple of suggestions on how to fight instead of fleeing west. Yes? Well, Your Excellency, you wanted to see me. Hamilton, come in. Have you met Burr? Yes, sir. We, we keep, keep meeting. As I was saying, sir, I look forward to seeing your strategy play out. Burr, sir, close the door on your way out. Have I done something wrong, sir? On the contrary, I called you here because our odds are beyond scary. Your reputation precedes you, but I have to laugh. Sir? Hamilton, how come no one can get you on their staff? Sir! Don't get me wrong, you're a young man of great renown. I know you stole British cannons when we were still downtown. Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox wanted to hire yeah, you. To be their secretary, I don't think so. Now why are you upset? I'm not. It's all right you want to fight, you've got a hunger. I was just like you when I was younger. Head full of fantasies of dying like a martyr. Yes, dying is easy, young man. Living is harder. The quietly humiliating encounter between Aaron Burr and George Washington that occurs during Right Hand Man is not in line with actual history. For the record, I don't mean to ding Hamilton for every deviation it takes from the facts, but some deviations are more troubling than others, and in general, I enjoy comparing the musical with what actually happened it's just fun for me, it's as simple as that, and this is not a glaring, this is not a glaring obfuscation of history. I just, I find this interesting to compare the stage drama with the drama of real life. Chapter 4, The Pen and the Sword, page 74 from the biography. Aaron Burr visited Washington in June 1776 and accepted his offer to serve on his military staff, or family as it was known. By some accounts, the aristocrat young Burr had grandiose expectations and imagined Washington would confer with him on grand matters of strategy. When he realized he would be relegated to more prosaic duties, he quickly quit in disgust. Something about Aaron Burr, his penchant for intrigue, a lack of sufficient deference, perhaps his insatiable chasing after women, grated on Washington. Much of Burr's political future was shaped by his decidedly cool wartime relations with Washington, while other contemporaries, Hamilton being the prime example, profited from the general's approbation. Okay, it's me talking again. Hello, Jonathan. Here is a not-so-inspiring example of Washington attempting to bring comfort to his beleaguered troops. This is from Chapter 6, A Frenzy of Valor, page 107. And this is from 1778. Okay, 1778. Before winter's end, some 2,500 men, almost a quarter of the American army, perished from disease, famine, or the cold. To endure such suffering required stoicism reminiscent of the ancient Romans, so Washington had his favorite play, Addison's Cato, the story of a self-sacrificing Roman statesman, staged at Valley Forge to buck up his weary men. Okay, this is me again, Jonathan. Thanks for the play, George. Thank you. I'm dying over here. I'm eating a horse. But okay, put on a play for me. Thank you.
change your life. And by all means, lead the way. Elizabeth Schuyler, it's a pleasure to meet you. Schuyler. My sister. Thank you for all your service. If it takes fighting a war for us to meet, it will have been worth it. I'll leave you to it. One week later, I'm writing a letter nightly. Now my life gets better every letter that you write me. Laughing at my sister because she wants to form a harem. I'm just saying, if you really love me, you would share them. Ha! Two weeks later in the My father stone-faced while you're asking for his blessing I'm dying inside as you whine and dine And I'm trying not to cry Cause there's nothing that your mind can't do My father makes his way across the room to you I panic for a second thinking we're through But then he shakes your hand and says be true And you turn back to me smiling punch of helpless and satisfied is the high point of the show. I, I love moving through the timeline of Eliza's courtship with Alexander, as well as Angelica's reappraisal of those moments. It leaves me breathless. It is a brilliant sequence. And while I may not pick up on 95% of the musical references scattered throughout Hamilton, you better believe I'm vibing on the nod to Beyonce's Countdown. Side note, I did technically pick up on the reference to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's The Message. Was I able to cite the group or the name of the song? No, but beyond those minor details, I totally got it because I am very well-read and cool. The following excerpt from the biography expands on an idea offered by Helpless, namely that Angelica wished for Eliza to share Hamilton with her. This is a letter from Angelica to Eliza in which she refers to Alexander as her, oh, how do you pronounce this word? Um, amia, amiable, amiable, I'm gonna go with amiable. Chapter 25, Seas of Blood, page 467, to quote Angelica, quote, by my amiable, you know that I mean your husband, for I love him very much. And if you were as generous as the old Romans, you would lend him to me for a little while. But do not be jealous, my dear Eliza, since I am more solicitous to promote his laudable ambition than any person in the world. And there is no summit of true glory which I do not desire he may attain, provided always that he pleases to give me a little chit-chat, and sometimes to say, I wish our dear Angelica was here. Ah, bless! You were a lucky girl to get so clever and so good a companion. Quote. Speaking of the one-two punch of helpless and satisfied, I think we should now hear a little bit of the second half of that one-two punch. Can we get a little bit of satisfied? A toast to the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the bride. 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 
just might regret that night for the rest of my days. I remember those soldier boys stripped over themselves to win our praise. I remember that dream like candlelight, like a dream that you can't quite place. But Alexander, I'll never forget the first time I saw your face. I have never been the same. Intelligent eyes in a hunger pang frame. And when you said hi, I broke out my dang name. Said my heart of flame, every part of flame. This is not a game. Strike me as a woman who has never been satisfied. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. You forget yourself. You're like me. I'm never satisfied. Is that right? I've never been satisfied. My name is Angelica Schuyler. Alexander Hamilton. Where's your family from? Unimportant. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you wait. Stop, stop, stop. So this is what it feels like to match wit with someone at your level. What the hell is the catch? It's the feeling of freedom of seeing the light. It's Ben Franklin with the key and a kite. You see it, right? The conversation lasted two minutes, maybe three minutes. Everything we said in total agreement. It's a dream and it's a bit of a dance. A bit of a posture, it's a bit of a stance. He's a bit of a flirt, but I'ma give it a chance. I asked about his family. Did you see his answer? His hands started fidgeting. He looked askance. He's penniless. He's flying by the seat of his pants. Handsome boy, does he know it? Peach fuzz, then he can't even grow it. I want to take him far away from this place. Then I turn and see my sister's face, and she is to change your life. Then by all means, lead the way. Oh, wonderful. What more could I possibly say? I mean, Renee Elise Goldsberry is the MVP of this production. Here are two instances from the biography, hello, where the word satisfied stood out to me. I would like to think they also stood out to Lin-Manuel Miranda. This is from the biography's prologue, The Oldest Revolutionary War Widow, pages one and two. The prologue, it should be said, serves as a snapshot of Eliza's later elderly years. This is from the book. In the front parlor of the house she now shared with her daughter, Eliza Hamilton had crammed the faded memorabilia of her now distant marriage. The highlight stood in the corner, a marble bust of Alexander carved by an Italian sculptor, Giuseppe Saracci, during Hamilton's heyday as the first treasury secretary. Quote, that bust I can never forget, one young visitor remembered, for the old lady paused before it in her tour of the rooms, and, leaning on her cane, gazed and gazed, as if she could never be satisfied. Quote, this next excerpt is in reference to Hamilton's affair with Mariah Reynolds. Chapter 19, City of the Future, page 367. It is easy to snicker at Hamilton's deceit and conclude that he faked all emotion for his wife, but this would belie the otherwise exemplary nature of their marriage. Eliza never expressed anything less than a worshipful attitude toward her husband. His love for her, in turn, was deep and constant, if highly imperfect. The problem was that no single woman could seem to satisfy all the needs of this complex man with his checkered childhood. As mirrored in his earliest adolescent poems, Hamilton seemed to need two distinct types of love. Love of the faithful domestic kind and love of the more forbidden, exotic variety. So the dude was horny. Hello, this is me, Jonathan, talking. He was horny. We get it, chair now. 
Theodosia writes me a letter every day. I'm keeping her bed warm while her husband is away. He's on the British side in Georgia. He's trying to keep the colonies in line. Well, he can keep all of Georgia. Theodosia, she's mine. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep loving anyway. We laugh and we cry and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm by her side and so many have tried, then I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. 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 But there are things that the homilies and hymns won't teach you. Teacher. My mother was a genius. My father commanded respect. When they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes, and we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm still alive, when everyone who loves me has died, I'm willing to wait for it. Wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. strikes me as being terribly underrated by Hamilton fans. Am I crazy for thinking such a thing? We should be talking about this song more. This number is bellissimo, and Leslie Odom Jr. is killing it. I love how his performance as Burr speaks to the idea of still waters running deep. Burr is a stoic man who is screaming on the inside, and when running for president in the second act, his attempts at charming the public are deranged and hilarious. The sight of Odom Jr. adopting a goblin's grin throughout that particular sequence always tickles me. The Battle of Yorktown 1781 Monsieur Hamilton Monsieur Lafayette In command where you belong Are you saying no sweater? We're finally on the field, we've had quite a run Immigrants, we get the job done so what happens if we win? I go back to France. I bring freedom to my people if I'm given the chance. We'll be with you when you do. Go, lead your man. I'll see you on the other side. Till we meet again. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. like a memory this is where it gets me on my feet the enemy ahead of me if this is the end of me at least i have a friend with me weapon in my hand a command of my men with me then i remember my allies is expecting me not only that my allies is expecting we gotta go gotta get the job done gotta start a new nation gotta meet my son Take the bullets out your gun the bullets out your gun we move undercover and we move as one through the night we have one shot to live another day we cannot let a straight gun 
immigrants. We get the job done from Yorktown. The world turned upside down. That line consistently produces a burst of applause from any given Hamilton audience. And it's a nice bite of pop progressive politics that goes down very easy. And yes, I get that the point of casting a man of color as Hamilton is to underscore the figure's immigrant status. But here's the thing. Alexander Hamilton grew to hate immigrants by the end of his life, which is something Hamilton the Musical has zero interest in exploring because it muddles the message, which is, uh, you know, immigrants, baby. Here are a few receipts concerning Hamilton's distaste for immigrants. Regarding the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, which, among other sins, made it supremely difficult for immigrants to become American citizens, Chernow writes in Chapter 32, Reign of Witches, page 572, So what did Hamilton think of the notorious laws? He wanted to throttle the flow of immigration. Quote, My opinion is that the mass of aliens ought to be obliged to leave the country. Quote, a disappointing stance from America's most famous foreign-born citizen and once an influential voice for immigration. This is me talking now. Hamilton was actually wary of how the acts would be carried out to quote Hamilton, quote, let us not be cruel or violent. Let us not establish a tyranny, quote, Felt it was important to include that point, at least. This is from chapter 34, In an Evil Hour, page 599 through 600. Formerly skeptical about aspects of the Alien and Sedition Acts, Hamilton now gave them full-throated support and ranted about the need to punish people, especially the foreign-born, who libeled government officials. Quote, Renegade aliens conduct more than one of the most incendiary presses in the United States, and yet, in open contempt and defiance of the laws, they are permitted to continue their destructive labors. Why are they not sent away? Quote, this is from Chapter 39, Pamphlet Wars, page 658. Jefferson wanted to abolish the 14-year naturalization period for immigrants, and Hamilton insinuated that foreigners, not real Americans, had voted the Virginian into office. He predicted that, quote, the influx of foreigners would, quote, change and corrupt the national spirit, quote. Most amazing of all, this native West Indian published a diatribe against the Swiss-born Treasury Secretary, Albert Gallatin, quote, who rules the councils of our own ill-fated, unhappy country, Hamilton asked, then replied, a foreigner. Throughout his career, Hamilton had been an unusually tolerant man with enlightened views on slavery, Native Americans, and Jews. His whole vision of American manufacturing had been predicated on immigration. Now, embittered by personal setbacks, he sometimes betrayed his own best nature. This is Jonathan talking. Hello. Uh, yeah, seems like he did. It seems like he did betray his own best nature. Hachi machi. I'm 
dedicating every day to you Domestic life was never quite my style when you smile You knock me out, I fall apart And I thought I was so smart You will come of age with our young nation We'll bleed and fight for you We'll make it right for you If we lay a strong enough foundation We'll pass it on to you We'll give the world to you And you'll blow us all away Someday, someday Yeah, you'll blow us all away Someday, someday Smile, I am undone, my son. Look at my son. Pride is not the word I'm looking for. There is so much more inside me now. Oh, Philip, you outshine the morning sun, my son. When you smile, I fall apart. And I thought I was so smart. Thank you very much for playing that clip from Dear Theodosia. I do appreciate it. I genuinely love how this week's subject paints Burr and Hamilton as men standing on opposite sides of a mirror. It's an amazing bit of structure on the part of the show. They are reflections of each other, and Dear Theodosia underscores this by showcasing the affection these men feel for their children. The Aaron Burr of Hamilton the Musical may be a short-sighted murderer, but he is not without his admirable qualities. By comparison, the Burr of the real world was a creep and a liar and a monster. He founded the Manhattan Company, which was advertised as a water company that would help New York recover from a yellow fever epidemic. In actuality, this water company was a bank. They wanted money. They were a bank. And their slipshod, lazy attempts at combating the epidemic only encouraged its return to New York. But hey, Burr got his money, so who cares if more people died, am I right? Do not get me started when it comes to this man's relationship with his daughter. Oh my god. When writing to little Theodosia, uh, grown-up Theodosia, I should say that she's not a child reading these letters, Burr frequently described his romantic liaisons, yuck, Y-U-C-K, going so far as to describe women's Bodies! Oh, you should have seen her, Theodosia. Whoa, whoa, whoa. She was so flat-chested. Stop it, Dad. One such letter was written in the wake of Burr's deadly encounter with Hamilton. Chapter 43, The Melting Scene, page 717. Even if he was a pariah, Burr was determined to enjoy his quota of fun. He contacted a favorite mistress, Celeste, and then told Theodosia Riley, quote, If any male friend of yours should be dying of ennui, Recommend him to engage in a duel and a courtship at the same time. Quote, Such ghoulish humor was Burr's stock in trade. Hello, this is me, Jonathan again. Boo! Gross! Daddy, stop it! After the war, I went back to New York. 
after the war, I went back to New York. I finished up my studies and I practiced law. I practiced law, Burr worked next door. Even though we started at the very same time, Alexander Hamilton began to climb. How to account for his rise to the top? Man, the man is non-stop. Gentlemen of the jury, I'm curious, bear with me. Are you aware that we're making history? This is the first murder trial of our brand new nation. The liberty behind deliberation. I intend to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt with my assistant counsel. Oh, counsel Hamilton, sit down. A client, Larry Weeks, is innocent. Call your first witness. That's all you had to say. Okay, one more thing. Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Assume that attitude may be your doom. Why do you write like you're running out of time? Write day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Keep on fighting in the meantime. Non-stop. Corruption's such an old song that we can sing along in harmony. You know where is it stronger than in Albany? This colony's economy's increasingly stalling. And honestly, that's why public service seems to be calling Practice the law, practically perfected it. I've seen injustice in the world and I've corrected it. Now for a strong central democracy. If not, then I'll be Socrates throwing verbal rocks at these mediocrities. Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention. I was chosen for the Constitutional Convention. There is a New York junior delegate. Now what I'm gonna say may sound indelicate. Uh, Chosen proposes his own form of government. His own plan for a new form of government. Talks for six hours. The convention is listless. Right, young man. Yo, who the F is this? That was a little slice of non-stop. I hope you enjoyed that yummy, yummy slice of the Act 1 closer from Chapter 27 of the biography, Sugar Plums and Toys, page 494. Regarding Camillus, one of Hamilton's many pseudonyms. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Camillus, Camillus, I don't know. Hamilton was not content to write as Camillus alone. Two days after his second essay appeared, he began to publish in the same paper, a parallel series under the name Philo Camillus. For several weeks, Philo Camillus indulged in extravagant praise of Camillus and kept up a running attack on their Republican adversaries. The prolific Hamilton was now writing pseudonymous commentaries on his own pseudonymous essays. This is Jonathan again. That is just so funny to me. Here is an opinion, and now I'm writing a response to the opinion, which says that the original opinion is brilliant. Hello, I'm jerking myself off in the press. France is following us to revolution. There is no more status quo. But the sun comes up and the world still spins. I have Lafayette draft a declaration, and I said I gotta go. I gotta be in Monticello, now the work at home begins. So what did I miss? What did I miss? Mm. Virginia, my home sweet home, I wanna give you a kiss. I've been in Paris meeting lots of different ladies. I guess I basically missed the late 80s. I traveled the wide, wide world and came back to this. There's a letter on my desk from the president Haven't even put my bag down yet Sally, BLM, darling, won't you open it? It says the president's assembling a cabinet And then I end up being the secretary of state Great, and I'm already standing approved I just got home and now I'm headed up to New York Headed to New York, headed to New York 
looking at the rolling fields, I can't believe that we are free. Ready to face whatever's awaiting me in NYC. Well, who's waiting for me when I step in the place? My friend James Madison, red in the face. He grabs my arm and I respond, what's going on? One of Lin-Manuel Miranda's more puzzling decisions as a writer rears its head near the top of What I Miss, in which Thomas Jefferson returns to America to great fanfare. Jefferson calls out to a woman named Sally and asks her to open a letter for him. She does, and we never hear of her again. If you had zero context as to who Sally was, you might assume she was Jefferson's, what, secretary, wife? In actuality, Sally is Sally Hennings, Jefferson's lover and slave. But the show is unwilling to unpack this, and so Sally is reduced to the status of an Easter egg. Seems like a fucked up choice. It is, it is. It's a fucked up choice. There's a lot of talk regarding slavery throughout Hamilton, but make no mistake, slaves do not have a voice in this show. Sally is a silent presence who comes and goes like leaves in a breeze. Weird. Weird. Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation. Would you like to join us? Or staying mellow, doing whatever the hell it is you doing, Monticello. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative. A civics lesson from a slave or hey neighbor. Your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the south, we create and keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting. And another thing, Mr. Age of Enlightenment, don't lecture me about the war, you didn't fight in it. You think I'm frightened of you, man? We almost died in the trench. Well, you are off getting high with the French. Thomas Jefferson always hesitant with the president. Medicine, there isn't a plan he doesn't jettison. Madison, you mad as a hat, so take your medicine. Damn, you in worse shape than the national debt is in. Sitting there useless as two shits. Hey, turn around, bend over, I'll show you where my shoe fits. Excuse me. All right, having listened to a bit of cabinet battle number one, I would like to offer a few examples of actual questions questionably clever wordplay from the era. This is from chapter 13 of the biography, Publius. Oh boy. Page 245. A pair of newspaper articles showed just how vicious the calumny against Hamilton would be. Hamilton was portrayed as the uppity Tom Shit and introduced as a musty, the offspring of a white person and a quadroon, Oh boy, this is Jonathan again. Tom shit. <laughs> I can't get over it. This is from chapter 22, Stabbed in the Dark, page 423. John F. Mercer ridiculed Hamilton as an upstart, a mushroom excrescence who did not deserve the prominence he had gained. My God, this is Jonathan again. A mushroom excrescence? A plus five-star insult. See also, Hamilton's supporters wanted to call New York City Hamiltonania. Hamiltonia. Hamilton. <laughs> Hamiltoniana. Awful. Awful name. While his enemies referred to New York City as Hamiltonopolis. <laughs> I am not sure which is worse. The compliment or the insult. It's the compliment. Hamiltoniana. What? 
See also people referring to wild enthusiasm for bank script as scripomania. We were not clever back then. Before I move on to the topic of slavery, I should point out how Jefferson accused Hamilton of pretending to contract yellow fever. He 100% did not believe Hamilton had yellow fever, even though it nearly killed the man. Thomas Jefferson was a prick. So here's the thing about Hamilton and his relationship to slavery. He was an abolitionist, to be sure, but he wasn't nearly as adamant in abolition as, say, John Adams. Hamilton reportedly purchased slaves for Angelica Schuyler and her husband, John Barker Church. Hamilton was all about emancipating slaves, but only if they served in a battalion like the one envisioned by his buddy, John Lawrence. But when push came to shove, Hamilton was more than willing to push his beliefs aside in the name of other achievements. This is from Chapter 15, Villainous Business, page 306. Though a passionate slavery critic, Hamilton knew that this inflammatory issue could wreck the Union. He couldn't be both the supreme nationalist and the supreme abolitionist. He certainly couldn't push through a controversial funding program if he stirred up the slavery question, which was probably a futile battle anyway. So this man of infinite opinions grew mute on that all-important matter. This is me, Jonathan, again. Highlighting Hamilton's status as an abolitionist for the sake of your pop progressive rhetoric is easy. Reckoning with his actual decisions is harder. P.S. John Lauren's all-black battalion idea? That sucks. Earn your freedom from us by fighting for us. Here's an idea. Fuck off. Dear sir, I hope this letter finds you in good health and in a prosperous enough position to put wealth in the pockets of people like me down on their luck. You see, that was my wife who decided to fall. Uh-oh, you made the wrong sucker a cuckoo. So time to pay the piper for the pants you want buckle. And hey, you can keep seeing my whole wife if the price is right. If not, I'm telling you your wife. I hit the letter and I raced to a place, screamed, I'll cut you in the face. She said no. Apologetic, a mess, she looked pathetic, she cried. Please don't go, sir. Super skillful story, you said. I don't know about any letters. Stop crying, goddammit, get up. I didn't know any better. I am ruined. Please don't leave me. I with am the helpless. Help How could I do this? Just give him what he wants and you can help me. Nobody needs to know.
Hey, a little bit of say no to this for you. How are you? I am generally fine with Miranda's references to South Pacific, the Pirates of Penzance, and 1776. Do I need them? No, but I will accept them. I do draw the line. However, when it comes to the nobody needs to know line from Say No to This, going out of your way to salute Jason Robert Brown's The Last Five Years is so strange and completely completely undermines what should be a deeply serious moment. This is jarring. You're taking me out of the show. Get it out of here. The Mariah Reynolds of the musical is a bit of an enigma. We don't really learn a lot about her, but Chan now dedicates a good deal of space to combing through her history. This is from Chapter 19, City of the Future, page 366. We know very little about the background of Mariah Reynolds. She was born Mary Lewis in Dutchess County, New York in 1768, married James James Reynolds at 15 and two years later gave birth to a daughter named Susan. One Philadelphia merchant, Peter A. Grotjan, described her as smart, sensitive, and genteel, but this picture conflicts with an affidavit from Richard Falwell, whose mother was her first landlady in Philadelphia. Falwell etched a portrait of Mariah Reynolds that tallies more closely with Hamilton's account of a mercurial personality prone to wild mood swings. Quote, her mind at this time was far from being tranquil or consistent, for almost at the same minute that she would declare her respect for her husband, cry and feel distressed, the tears would vanish, and levity would succeed, with bitter execrations on her husband. This inconsistency and folly was ascribed to a troubled but innocent and harmless mind. In one or other of these paroxysms, she told me so infamous was the perfidy of Reynolds that he had frequently enjoined and insisted that she should insinuate herself on certain high and influential characters, endeavor to make assignations with them, and actually prostitute herself to gull money from them. Quote, my goodness gracious, Whoa, this is Jonathan again, my goodness, let us hear, oh, let's hear the room where it happens next. Alexander Hamilton, what did they say to you to get you to sell New York City? Presidential pressure to deliver Alexander Hamilton Or did you know even then it doesn't matter where you put the U.S. Capitol Cause we'll have the banks, we're in the same spot You got more than you gave And I wanted what I got when you got skin in the game, you stay in the game But you don't get a win unless you play in the game Oh, you get love for it, you get hate for it You get nothing if you wait for it, wait for it, wait God help and forgive me. I want to build something that's gonna outlive me. What do you want, girl? What do you want, girl? If you stand for nothing, girl, what do you fall for? I, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens. I want to be Saying what they trade away. We dream of a brand new start. But we dream in the dark for the most part. 
everyone turn their back on the banjo from the room where it happens. I love that banjo. Alex Lacamoire, you were there with Miranda at the White House all the way back in 2009, and your work on these orchestrations pushed Hamilton to transcendent heights. Bravo, sir. I need you to draft an address. Yes, he resigned. You can finally speak your mind. No. He's stepping down so he can run for president. <laughs> Good luck defeating you, sir. I'm stepping down, I'm not running for president. I'm sorry, what? One last time. Relax, have a drink with me. One last time. Let's take a break tonight, and then we'll teach him how to say goodbye. Just say goodbye. You Talk about neutrality. Sure. With Britain and France on the verge of war, is this the best time? I want time? to warn against partisan fighting. What? Pick up a pen, start writing. I want to talk about what I have learned, the hard-won wisdom I have earned. As far as the people are concerned, you have to serve. You could continue to serve. No. One last time, the people will hear from me. One last time. We're gonna teach them how to say goodbye You and I Hey, a little bit of one last time for you. I'm doing this voice again. I'm doing this bit again. Hey, how are you? Chapter 34, In an Evil Hour, page 600. Washington departed the planet as admirably as he had inhabited it. He had long hated slavery, even though he had profited from it. Now, in his will, he stipulated that his slaves should be emancipated after Martha Washington's death. And he set aside funds for slaves who would be either too young or too old to care for themselves. Of the nine American presidents who owned slaves, a list that includes his fellow Virginians Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, only Washington set free all of his slaves. Hello, this is Jonathan again. Is it truly admirable if you only free your slaves after you and your wife have died? and no longer have any use for them. What happened to these slaves once they were free? Am I supposed to believe they enjoyed fairy tale endings? We don't need to hear a clip from the Reynolds pamphlet, but you should know the full title of said pamphlet, which was as follows. Get ready for a mouthful. The full title is... Observations on certain documents contained in numbers 5 and 6 of the History of the United States for the year 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Alexander Hamilton, late Secretary of the Treasury, is fully refuted, written by himself. <laughs> what a whopper. What a whopper. This girl into our bed In clearing your name You have ruined our lives Do you know what Angelica said When she read what you'd done She said You've married an Icarus He has flown too close to the sun You and your words Obsessed with your legacy 
produce a podcast episode about Hamilton and bypass Burn. We couldn't do that to you. It would be unconscionable. Philippa Sue. I love you, Philippa Sue. Broadway's Amelie. There are moments that the words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. The moments when you're in so deep, it feels easier to just swim down. The Hamiltons move uptown and learn to live with the unimaginable. Spend hours in the garden. I walk alone to the store And it's quiet uptown I never liked the quiet before I take the children to church on Sunday A sign of the cross at the door And I pray That never used to happen before If you see him in the street Walking by himself Like it uptown, it's quiet uptown. He is working through the unimaginable. His hair is gone gray, he passes every day. They say he walks the length of the city. You knock me out, I fall apart. Can you imagine? As I said, Lynn Manuel Miranda being a bit of a ham in It's Quiet Uptown. This is from Chapter 38, A World Full of Folly, page 655. I told you to remember little Angelica, right? The daughter of Alexander and Eliza, of course. Well, we're taking a pin out of little Angelica, and we're addressing her now. This is from the biography. One of the casualties of Philip's death was the Hamilton's 17-year-old daughter, Angelica, a lively, sensitive, musical girl who resembled her beautiful aunt, having been exceedingly 
exceedingly close to her older brother, Angelica was so unhinged by his death that she suffered a mental breakdown. That fall, Hamilton did everything in his power to restore her health and catered to her every wish. He asked Charles C. Pinckney to send her watermelons and three or four parakeets. Quote, she is very fond of birds. Quote, but all the loving attention did not work, and her mental problems worsened. She lived until age 73 and wound up under the care of a Dr. McDonald in Flushing, Queens. Only intermittently lucid, consigned to an eternal childhood, she often did not recognize family members. For the rest of her life, she sang songs that she had played on the piano in duets with her father, and she always talked of her dead brother as if he were still alive. Hello, this is me, Jonathan, again. Is that the saddest fucking thing you've ever heard in your goddamn life? Holy hell. Patty, Benny, I'm gonna make another request of ya. Now I wanna hear the world was wide enough. Hit it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There are ten things you need to know. Number one. We rode across the Hudson at dawn. My friend William P. Van Ness signed on as my number, number two. Hamilton arrived with his crew. Nathaniel Pendleton and the doctor that he knew. Number three. I watched Hamilton examine the terrain. I wish I could tell you what was happening in his brain. This man is poisoned by political pursuits. Most disputes die and no one shoots. Number four. Hamilton drew first position, looking to the world like a man on a mission. This is a soldier with a marksman's ability. The doctor turned around so he could have deniability. Five. Now I didn't know this at the time, but we were near the same spot. My son died, is that why? He examined his gun with such rigor. I watched as he methodically fiddled with the trigger. Seven. Confession time, here's what I got. My fellow soldiers will tell you I'm a terrible shot. Number eight. Your last chance to negotiate. Send in your second, see if they can set the record straight. They won't teach you this in your classes, but look it up. Hamilton was wearing his glasses. Why? If not to take deadly aim, it's him or me. The world will never be the same. I had only one thought before the slaughter. This man will not make an orphan of my daughter. Number nine. Look him in the eye, aim no higher. Summon all the courage you require, then count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number ten, pace is fire. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From chapter 42, Fatal Errand, page 698. According to John Church Hamilton, Alexander's son, in the period immediately preceding the duel, presumably before the challenge was issued, Burr was so harried by debt that he appealed even to Hamilton for help. Hamilton's son related this incredible tale that Eliza told her children. Quote, Hamilton was at his country seat and, soon after the early summer sun had arisen, was awakened by a violent ringing at the bell of his front door. He arose, descended, and found Burr at the door. With great agitation, Burr related circumstances which rendered pecuniary assistance absolutely necessary to him. On returning to his bed, Hamilton relieved the anxiety of his wife caused by his early call. To quote Hamilton, who do you think was at the door? 
Colonel Burr, he came to ask my assistance. With astonishing generosity, Hamilton solicited money from John Church Barker, who had dueled with Burr and other friends to raise $10,000 in cash. This is Jonathan again. Too long, didn't read. If that's the case for you, Burr was a completely shameless piece of shit. Oh, how I loathe and detest Alexander Hamilton. Hey, Hamilton, give me some money, will ya? Bang, 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 I'm knocking at your door. Wake up, you fucking geek. Bang, 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 I'm murdering you. This is the sound of a gun. Bang, bang. Every other founding father story gets told. Every other founding father gets to grow old. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? your flame who tells your story who tells your story Eliza I put myself back in the narrative Eliza I stop wasting time on tears I live another 50 years it's not enough I interview every soldier who fought by your side I try to make sense of your thousands of pages of writings you really do write but you're running out of time I rely on Angelica while she's alive we tell your story she is buried in Trinity Church near you when I needed her most she was right on time and I'm still not through I ask myself what would you do if you had more time the Lord in his kindness he gives me what you
We bring our deconstruction of the score to an end with that clip you just heard of Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. This is from chapter 42 of the biography, Fatal Errand, page 709. The following letter was written by Hamilton and delivered to Eliza upon his death. Quote, This letter, my very dear Eliza, will not be delivered to you unless I shall first have terminated my earthly career. To begin, as I humbly hope, from redeeming grace and divine mercy a happy immortality. If it had been possible for me to have avoided the interview, my love for you and my precious children would have been alone a decisive motive. But it was not possible without sacrifices which would have rendered me unworthy of your esteem. I need not tell you of the pangs I feel from the idea of quitting you and exposing you to the anguish which I know you would feel. Nor could I dwell on the topic lest it should unman me. The consolations of religion, my beloved, can alone support you, and these you have a right to enjoy. Fly to the bosom of your God and be comforted. With my last idea, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. Adieu, best of wives and best of women. Embrace all my darling children for me. Ever yours, A.H. This is Jonathan again. That is a very sweet letter. I don't think he should have entered into that duel. It's a very selfish decision. He lies to her in the musical. He says, oh, I have a very early meeting. <laughs> no, you didn't tell her about her son's duel. Her son died as a result. And then you lied to her about your own damn duel. Hamilton, bad, 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 bad. That's it. That's all I have to say regarding the score of Hamilton. Let us now hear from our friends, our good sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Oh, let's do it. Hit it. Take it away, I should say. 5678. Hi, Katie, it's me, Janice Sarkeesian, your best friend, your buddy, your... Shut up, Damien! No, 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 don't talk. You are too gay to function. I am going to be talking to Katie today, okay? Katie, I've drawn up an updated version of the cafeteria layout, and I thought you could use a little bit more context as to how everything works here at North Shore High. So we're going to break down all the clicks here in this cafeteria map that I've drawn. It's a very good map. Okay, so over here we have the academics, of course. The nerds, the dweebs, the twits. And then over here we have the debate freaks, the drama beasts, the furries, the murrays, the uh, ginger studs. Okay, so the ginger studs are over here. We have over here the photography club right next to the ginger studs. But we also have the film society. Oh, the improv team. Ugh. They're called Two Shakes of a Pam's Tail. I don't know what it means. They suck. Uh, who else? Oh, okay. So, the student council, the student council rejects, the clones, oh my god, the clones, the paramedics, the varsity ghosts, the JV ghosts, the rat pack, the brat pack, of course, duh, the shadracks, the meshacks, the archipelagos. Uh, okay, so the base, this is all the athletes. We have the baseball team, the softball team, the hardball team, the primetime queens, the freaks, the sneaks, the dinks, the finks, the literal robots, watch out for them, they are literal robots, the metaphorical robots, even more annoying, metaphorical, oh, don't even get me started, the card sharks, the street sharks, the old farts, the jumbo jets, 
Nuts, the Django Fets, the Weirdos, the Speedos, the Bernie Bros, the Army Brats, the Jim Brats, the Hyper Intelligent Bats. Okay, so over here in this corner, just redirect your eyes over here, we have the Drag Queens, the Kings of Queens, the Catholics, the Mavericks, the Loose Collection of Pale Bones, just right here, the Sherlock Holmes Cosplay Brigade, otherwise known as the SHCB. And then over here we have the Puritans, the Slutty Puritans, the Smurfs, the Puritan Smurfs, the Slutty Smurfs, the Space Cowboys, of course, the Gangsters of Love, Maurice, shut up! Okay, what was I saying? Oh, this is where Maurice sits. Okay, this is where Maurice sits. He's got his own table. And then around him we have the Pickers, the Grinners, the Lovers, the Sinners, the Jokers, the Smokers, the Midnight Tokers, the Sentient Pepperoni Pizzas, the Mathletes, the Burger King Kids Club, yes! The Knives, the Knives, the Bottomless Box of Bloody Bloody Knives. Don't reach into that. There's no food in there. Do, do, do not, just don't reach into that, okay? The Cheeseheads, the Swifty, the Ironic Swifties, the Shirios, the Ironic Shirios, the Little Monsters, the Ironic Little Monsters, the Little Monsters Movie Fan Club, the Ironic Little Monsters Movie Fan Club, the Rich Kids, the Witch Kids, the Snitch Kids, the Sneeches, the Peaches, the Santa Marias, the Santa Claus Twinks, the Mayor's Seven Daughters, the Mayor's Seven Sons, they always sit separately, the Hot Vampires, oh, watch out for them, very hot, the Ugly Vampires, they're actually very cool. The littlest vampires, they're so cute. The mediocre umpires, so mediocre. It's like baseball, blah, blah, blah. The vapors, the vapors, the Severus Snapers, the Betty Drapers, the old maids, the ROTC, the cheerleaders, the dance squad, the flag team, the Romanoffs, the slutty Romanoffs, the fuck me alligator Loki cult. The Mythbusters, the Ghostbusters, the real Ghostbusters, the Dave and Busters, the Ray Romano Deserves More Credit Association, otherwise known as the RRDMCA, the RRDMCA, the Democrats, the Republicans, the Anime Communists, the Boomers, the Zoomers, the Ernest Borgnine Masturbates a Lot Society, otherwise known as, say it with me, the EBMALS, EBMALS, the Podcasters, the Plastics. Oh my god, they're back. The Minutemen, the Teen Moms, the Speed Freaks, the Anti-Vaxxers, they're all over here. They're all over here. The French Club, they meet outside. The Spanish Club, they meet inside. The Undercover Cops, there are nine of them. Watch out. The quivering mass of living muscle, hair, and eyes that sees through our cheap facades and knows what truly lies within our hearts and will one day rise from its underwater tomb so that it may consume all that God created so long ago in his drunken fit of stupid arrogance. If we are lucky, the stoners, and of course, Janice Sarkeesian and David, who's too gay to function. <laughs> you should really just keep hanging out with us. I just wanted to have, give you this, I should say. Give you this for a handy visual reference. Damien, where are coffees? Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. We need coffees. Oh, jeez. Don't worry about Damien. Oh, I love him, but he's gay. Final thoughts regarding Hamilton. I'll say it again. Every performer in this cast is operating at the height 
of their powers. The show is entertaining and brilliantly written, but it is not illuminating. Pop progressive politics may be fun, but women in the sequel work, but they say very little about America or its history. Yes, we are all immigrants, but we are immigrants who robbed our new home from indigenous peoples. We did not get the job done. Slaves got the job done. Hamilton was a wishy-washy abolitionist who outright hated immigrants. If we can own up to these facts, I would feel more comfortable enjoying Hamilton for what it is, namely the best Thanksgiving pageant ever produced. But also, I completely understand why performers of color would reject a show like Hamilton. Playing historical figures of color and telling their stories does seem a hell of a lot more rewarding than playing white people. Put another way, Hamilton may be diverse, but it is not actually inclusive. As a reminder, Hamilton was the 2016 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, and the additional nominees that season were Bright Star, School of Rock, which we have talked about on the podcast, Shuffle Along, or The Making of the Musical Sensation of 1921, and all that followed, and... Oh, here we go. Waitress, another subject that we have covered in the past. Now the question comes to me, does Hamilton deserve to keep its Tony Award for Best Musical? You know what? I feel like giving it to Waitress. I'm just gonna be really crazy. I'm gonna be crazy. I'm gonna give the award to Waitress. That's how I feel. Waitress, you're the new winner of the 2016 Tony Award for Best Musical. Having said that, I am now going to rank Hamilton against all of the other shows we have talked about here on the podcast. If you want to see that ranking, go to our Twitter page, twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. You'll find a link tree. Go to our spreadsheet. Go to our second tab. Go to the second tab on the spreadsheet. That is where you will find this ranking. So where does Hamilton fall? Hamilton will be number 24. Oh, number 24 on our list between Funny Girl at number 23 and Passing Strange at number 25. Will that change? Ah, changes could be made to this ranking at any point in time. So keep an eye out. Keep your ears open. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, I would like to begin by clearing out the rest of my notes regarding Ron Chernow's biography. This is from Chapter 6, A Frenzy of Valor, page 170 through 118. This is in regards to Maryland Congressman Samuel Chase. A signer of the Declaration of Independence and later a Supreme Court Justice, Chase was a tall, ungainly man with a resemblance to Dr. Samuel Johnson and a face so broad and ruddy that he was dubbed Bacon Face. I love it. Bacon face. This is from chapter 8, Glory, page 164. This is a disturbing detail regarding Charles Cornwallis's approach to fighting American troops during the Revolutionary War. Cornwallis had grown so desperate that he infected blacks with smallpox and forced them to wander toward enemy lines in an attempt to sicken the opposing forces. Holy shit! This is from chapter 34, In an Evil Hour, page 595. Hamilton persisted with plans for his army. This is Jonathan. I should say that Hamilton really wanted a provisional army late in his political career. He worried that Napoleon might attempt a sneak attack on an American port and that the country would be caught off guard. He got bogged down in bickering about petty details, telling McHenry that he was, quote, disappointed and distressed, quote, by a shipment of cocked hats, 
ordered for one regiment. He lectured him pedantically that cocked hats must be cocked on all three sides. Quote, but the hats received are only capable of being cocked on one side, and the brim is otherwise so narrow as to consult neither good appearance nor utility. They are also without cockades and loops. Quote, this next bit is from chapter 37, Deadlock, page 638. On March 4th, 1801, the day of Thomas Jefferson's inauguration, John Adams, now a balding, toothless, cantankerous old man, climbed into a stagecoach at four in the morning and left for Massachusetts eight hours before Jefferson was sworn into office. He thus became the first of only three presidents in American history who chose to boycott their successors' inaugurations. Hello again, this is Jonathan. A fourth name has been added to that list since Chernow's book was published in 2004. Here are all four of those names. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Johnson, and Donald Trump, of course. America, home of the whiny pissants. Chapter 40, The Price of Truth, page 666. Ooh, creepy. This is in regards to Chancellor James Kent's 1804 visit with Hamilton. It was probably on this visit that Hamilton performed a small courtesy that Kent never forgot. Feeling poorly, Kent retired early to bed. Anxious about his guest, Hamilton tiptoed into his room with an extra blanket and draped it over him delicately. Quote, sleep warm, little judge, and get well, Hamilton told him. What should we do if anything should happen to you? Quote. All right, that's it. I have nothing more from the book, I swear. Let's hear a bit of a parody that was submitted to us by GOAT listener and patron Zach. This is Bat-Alexander Manilton, written by Sam Clark, Phil Hamilton, my goodness, Hamilton, and Ian Cardoni. Let's hear it. Well, the word got around. They said, this guy is insane, man. Dressing like a bat behind a mask, and that's his game plan. Sees the law and takes it in his hands, and that's okay. Well, the world's gotta know your name. What's your name, man? Bat-Alexander Manilton. My name is Bat-Alexander Manilton. But if I'm ever asked by anyone, I'm just Bruce Wayne, just Bruce Wayne. Let us now hear a bit of Weird Al Yankovic's The Hamilton Polka. Oh, I didn't know this existed. Let's hear this. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman drop in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by Providence and Pulverish and Swaller grow up to be a hero and a scholar? A ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By fourteen, they placed him in charge of the trading charter. Alexander Hamilton, my name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you wait, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. I am the one thing in life I can control. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. I am inimitable, I am an original, and if there's a reason I'm still alive, so many. Look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. History is happening in Manhattan, and we just happen to be in the greatest city, in the greatest city in the world. The world turned upside down. 
classic Weird Al Yankovic. And finally, you would think, you would think that Saturday Night Live had produced at some point, had at some point, a... (laughs) I can't, I, I can't find my words. I just can't believe that SNL never did a Hamilton sketch, but they did, they did produce. On April 24th, 2010, they staged a sketch called Hamilton, in which Will Forte plays a racist character named Hamilton. This character, uh, this character is trying to win back, in the context of this scene, he's trying to win back Gabourey Sibide at a Q&A session for the film Precious. Can we hear that just for the sake of, (laughs) just for the sake of it? Anyone else? I have a question, my love. Hamilton, what are you doing here? I've come to ask for your black hand in marriage. Hamilton, this is not the time or the place for this. If not us, who? If not now, when? Hamilton, I don't think that you of all people should be quoting RFK. Oh, it was RFK. I thought it was from Birth of a Nation. Whatever, just take me back, my love. Hamilton, you are straight up crazy if you think I would ever get back with you. Well, apparently you've forgotten how I used to captivate you with my sensual dancing. (laughs) How I spent long nights tracing passages from Robert Ludlum novels into your back with my penis. Hamilton, yes. We had some great times. But I've moved on. I have a career now. Well, I'm offering you the role of a lifetime. The role of my wife, Mrs. Hamilton Whiteman. Hamilton, don't you get it? I am a proud African-American woman. I cannot be with a person who thinks the way that you do. Gabourey, I'm different now. With the changing of the guard in the White House, or should I say Black House? I've realized that I must change my antiquated attitude towards race relations. I find that hard to believe. Tell me one thing that you've done. I saw your movie. You... you saw Precious? Yes, my gab. I went to the local Magic Johnson movie theater. I looked for a Larry Bird theater, but it didn't exist. Oh, Hamilton, I'm so flattered. Tell me you like the movie. The black audience was talking to the screen a lot, so I couldn't understand 90% of it. But what I saw, I liked. What I saw, I liked. Hamilton, you don't know how much that means to me, and I'm so sorry that those people talked. Don't you call them those people. Oh, Ham, you really have changed. Enough for you to take me back. I'll take you back, and I'll take you front. You sure you want to do that? I've never been more sure about anything in my life. Oh, when I'm with you, life is a gabberet, my dear. Life is a gabberet. Was this a recurring character? Did we ever bring Hamilton back? What was the point of this sketch? What is the point of the character? I'll never get over it. SNL, what a wild show. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Minnesota and Her Children. That's Minnesota, dot, dot, dot.
and her children. I'd just like to point out the formatting for a lot of these titles. Everyone ready to ride the musical carousel? Then away we go. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> No, we're not gonna play the music because we already know what the next subject is. Oh my goodness, patron Sydney reached out to me. Sydney, finally, finally, my goodness, Sydney. <laughs> I'm not yelling at you. Sydney chose the show that they wanted us to talk about on the podcast. As a patron, Sydney had every right to tell us what show to talk about, and they made their decision. It is the 2015 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 583 performances. Do you know what it is? Sydney knows what it is. I know what it is. It's Fun Home. That's the next subject of the main feed, and that episode will drop Wednesday, August 4th. That's right. Oh my god, we're taking another week off so we can produce another brand new episode of our Patreon series M3, The Movie Musical Man. I'll tell you more about that in just a second, but I just want to reassure you that starting Wednesday, August 4th, we will be back on a weekly basis. You'll be getting brand new main feed episodes every week. I swear that won't last forever. Everything changes at a certain point, but we are going back to the weekly main feed schedule. Now, speaking of Patreon, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Okra Project. Have we announced this on the main feed? I can't remember. We are no longer donating our Patreon payouts to Black Lives Matter. We we are so proud of the money we raised over the last 12 months, a little over $1,300 for Black Lives Matter, but we have shifted our focus. We are now going to be donating 100% of our payouts to the Okra Project. I am so excited for this year of donations to begin. I am so excited. You can donate one, three, five, or $10 a month via Patreon. Now, let's say you donate $1 a month. What do you get? I would encourage you. We have not had a new patron in quite some time. I want to see you signing on. Sign on for a dollar a month, okay? Patreon.com slash MusicalManPod. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just trying to impress upon you. I want to see this. I want to see these numbers go up. I want the Okra Project to get as much money as possible from us as a listenership, as a community. So let's say you donate $1 a month. What do you get? You get Monday early access to main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout out from me each and every week. Let's do that now. Thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. I love that list of names. It's so nice. It's so long, but it could be longer. But you get more than that. You get more than that as a $1 a month patron. You get 13 bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney Plus if you want to hear me talk even more about Hamilton. We have a whole episode about that. Documentary Now, original cast album, co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, that is a full movie commentary, and finally, a bonus episode regarding the trailer for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. 
But we're not done. One dollar a month patrons also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy. That is a special, very personal series for which I talk about songs outside of the musical theater canon that make me feel more like myself. I get in touch with myself by listening to the songs that make me feel more like myself. That's the pitch. And finally, M3, the movie musical man. We have produced eight episodes of this special series, which is all about trilogies, trios of movie musicals that are connected by a common theme. Our ninth episode is dropping July 28th, okay? Next Wednesday, if you want to hear it, and the preceding eight episodes of M3, The Movie Musical Man, become a $1 a month patron. What is the theme of our ninth episode? Well, it's the Ooh La La trilogy. Sexy movie musicals. Movie musicals. We're going to be watching and talking about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Moulin Rouge, and Hello again. Now let's say you donate $3 a month via Patreon. Well, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get season one, 10 episodes of Wild Cats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a special one-off regarding season one of Julie and the Phantoms. $5 a month will get you everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast, just like Sid me did with Fun Home, you can tell us what to talk about, as long as it was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. You also get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, a very special advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You also get access to our Broadway and Chicago reviews and Shout About It, volumes one and two. Those are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Finally, $10 a month will get you everything I've already talked about, plus you get exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. You get season one, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, which is dedicated to Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. And finally, you get access to Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. We just released our mid-season finale, which means there are six episodes for you right now. We cover Emojiland, Soft Power, The Fantastics, We Are the Tigers, Bat Boy, and A Strange Loop. It's great. Become a patron today. I encourage you yet again. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please write a five-star review. Please, please, please. We are trying to accumulate 65-star reviews. We have 50. We only need 10 more, baby. 10 more. And then once we get to that goal, once we cross that finish line, I will produce a special episode all about Disney. Zombies franchise. You can stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny. I'm so glad we are all back together, the three musketeers. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. I should also say Zach Little composed the musical carousels theme. We did didn't hear it this week, but you can hear it in all of the other episodes, I do say. Oh, oh, goodness. It's rare that I, I get scared by that sound, but I, I just got scared again. Oh, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night.
And that was the Vienna Wood Dancing D, one of my all-time favorites. And now let's make that random call with today's $10,000 question. It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? All right, let's go to the phones and see who's out there. Hello? Hello, for $10,000, who shot... Excuse me? I'm afraid your time is almost up. I'm sorry, maybe next time. Got milk. Here are some exciting scenes from today's episode of Liberty's Kids. Soon, General Washington will have the whole army inoculated. Can you imagine a world without smallpox? I'm afraid my imagination is not quite so vivid. It's the kind of scientific progress Dr. Franklin always talks about. Perhaps you should take the inoculation yourself. Would General Washington let me? Spring will be here before we know it, and he's going to need every strong man he can find, even those who write for newspapers. Good luck to you, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton. It's not official yet, but thank you anyway. Well, I had better find His Excellency. You can't imagine how many letters he has us write. <laughs> <laughs> 